Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. January 27th marks the anniversary of the Supreme Court's ruling in Roe v. Wade. The holding in Roe and the fight for reproductive justice are centered on the ability of all people to have freedom of self-determination over their body, health, and destiny. These are the same values that are at the heart of LGBT people's fight for equal dignity. From a jurisprudential standpoint, the advances for reproductive rights and LGBT liberation share largely the same constitutional underpinnings, namely the right to privacy. With new Trump justices on the Supreme Court and Trump judges at all levels of the federal bench, there is a real fear that the central holding in Roe is at risk. Today, we are going to talk about some of the ways in which the legal battle for reproductive justice and LGBT rights are linked. I'm here with Scott Ruskay-Kidd of the Center for Reproductive Rights. Scott serves as senior staff attorney for U.S. Judicial Strategy. The center is a 200-person strong organization with its headquarters in New York, where I'm sitting right now, and of course in D.C. and around the world. For 25 years, the Center for Reproductive Rights has been the driving force in many of the most significant legal battles, ensuring access to reproductive health across the globe. The center's work encompasses not just abortion, but also protecting the full range of reproductive health issues, from contraception to maternal health, assisted reproduction, and ending the worst abuses of reproductive rights across the world. Scott graduated from Harvard College, he attended Columbia Law School, he clerked on the Second Circuit and for the Federal District Court of the Southern District of New York, he practiced at Kramer Levin and DeBevoys, and received awards for his pro bono work starting with Lawrence v. Texas and his work on Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstadt, the 2016 Supreme Court case which struck down Texas's law shutting down its abortion clinics, which shockingly we are back at the court talking about all over again in 2020. Hi, Scott. It's so great to be talking with you today. Hi, Eric. Such a pleasure to talk to you with you. Um, So we have a lot of ground to cover, but uh, I thought maybe we could tee off the conversation by acknowledging the anniversary of Roe, which is January 22nd. Why is this decision so important for reproductive freedom and also other civil rights and civil, civil liberties issues, including LGBT rights? Uh, there are deep roots and connections between Roe versus Wade, um, which uh, recognized the constitutional right to abortion in 1973, and a host of cases that have come afterwards, uh, including all of the uh, LGBT uh, sort of line of decisions um, that Justice Kennedy uh, wrote, where he cited and drew on um, Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, uh, which reaffirmed uh, Roe in 1992. The the core holding in Roe was that uh, the Constitution's express guarantee of liberty is uh, broad and meaningful enough to include a right to privacy to make intimate personal decisions. that was first articulated starting in the early 1900s um, and you know for 50 years before Roe uh, dealt with numerous uh, issues involving family um, uh, decision making 
um, sterilization, um, contraception, uh, until the 1960s, of course, until Griswold uh, versus Connecticut, uh, states could criminalize contraception. Um, and uh, Roe, by recognizing that history, by cementing the uh, liberty to uh, make life-defining choices, uh, became the platform for so many cases that followed. Uh, there's uh, uh, there's decisions about the right to medical care and medical treatment, uh, medical decision-making generally, um, cases about bodily autonomy, um, which draw on row. There's cases about um, uh, a host of civil rights subjects which are, uh, which are linked with Roe. Um, you know, with all the the um, uh, urgency of, uh, of of the moment uh, about whether Roe will continue to stand, I often think of it as a as a Jenga tower, um, and what uh, might happen if if Roe was pulled out <laughs> of that tower is uh, is scary to think about. It's a foundational decision about the meaning of liberty. There's an interesting backstory between the lead plaintiff in Roe uh, and LGBT identity. Yes, uh, and actually not just the, the, the lead plaintiff. There's a book to be written about how queer people got us Roe versus Wade. Um, no kidding. Uh, J- uh, Roe, uh, which was a pseudonym, uh, Norma uh, McCorvey, she was queer. Um, before uh, her court case, um, you know, she told her mom uh, that, and her mom kicked her out of the house. Um, and uh, the, the lawyer who brought the, uh, who found uh, Norma McCarvey, wrote the petition to the Supreme Court, wrote the petition, helped argue in the district court and appealed up to the Supreme Court, um, was a gay woman, uh, Linda Coffey. Um, in 1969, uh, Linda Coffey had um, uh, uh, joined up with uh, another gay lawyer, Henry McCluskey, uh, to challenge Texas's sodomy laws, and stump, which that was not successful until you know <laughs> some decades later. But this was 1969. Um, wow, yeah. So so Coffee and McCluskey are you know g- getting together to challenge Texas's sodomy laws, mm-hmm. um, and Linda Coffee also stumbled upon the idea that uh, Texas's abortion statute was was also unconstitutional, um, and there are relationships between these issues. Uh, Linda Coffey didn't have a plaintiff, <laughs> and she talked to McCluskey about her idea um, of challenging Texas's uh, abortion laws, um, just as they've been challenging Texas's sodomy laws. And, and McCluskey told her about a, a Texas woman uh, he knew of who wanted an abortion, Norma McCorvey. Um, <laughs> this is this is one queer lawyer talking to another queer lawyer about the queer woman he knows in Texas, um, in, Texas in, in the 1960s. <laughs> wow. um, I, I don't, and I don't think it's irrelevant that 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 is in the, in the backstory um, of Roe versus Wade, which I, uh, as I said, there's a book to be written about this. I don't know how how much this is sort of known, but um, there's not only are there all sorts of doctrinal overlaps uh, between uh, LGBTQ law and, and reproductive rights law, I've dealt with as a lawyer, but you know there's a really powerful sociological point about um, state control of, of of individuals' autonomy and sexual and reproductive lives, um, state-backed prescriptions of what it means to be a man and a woman, um, 
and and the sources and reasons why people resist that state control. Uh, people who um, desire autonomy and dignity, uh, who want to live their lives, who do not uh, think the state should be able to define gender roles in rigid ways um, and say you are born this way as a man and as a woman and that means your life shall look like this, your life shall look like that. That urge, that resistance um, provides common fuel. And gosh, on the other side, um, it's uh, I've done some work on um, on on originalism and abortion, you and uh, yeah, originalism comes up. And one of the things that's <laughs> that's often lost is that um, yeah, abortion was uh, until sort of uh, the fourth or so month of pregnancy was was legal at the founding and uh, and at in common law under common law in, in England. Um, and it was the first federal statute to uh, criminalize, to target abortion um, was in the Victorian era. And it uh, targeted um, together um, contraception, abortion, and obscenity. Um, it was, and obscenity was broadly defined. I guess they didn't have the modern understanding of the First Amendment oh, at the time. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was the Comstock law named after a man, Anthony Comstock, moral crusader, anti-gay, anti-woman. Um, uh, Comstock said gay people should be branded on their foreheads with the word unclean. That He actually said that and put in prison for life. Uh, and this is the man who gave us our first federal law targeting abortion um, and and all obscenity <laughs> as the Victorians then then uh, described it uh, so there's there's a lot of overlap between the state control and the resistance to, to state control and it's um, it's seen at many points in history and it continues today Wow so Gorsuch if you're listening there's an originalist <laughs> argument here that I'm sure will appear before the Supreme Court. We've talked a little bit about um, LGBT plaintiffs at the heart of some of the reproductive justice battle, that the constitutional underpin underpinnings and um, doctrinally they've evolved from the same basic core of uh, liberty. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the other thing that, that our movements have in common, which is uh, opponents to our basic equal dignity, our liberty, um, they're they're the same key figures, aren't they? Yes, uh, they often are. Yeah, uh, and uh, there there are often uh, playbooks uh, that these org you know organizations um, opposing um, LGBTQ rights and reproductive rights uh, write on an annual basis, um, and they cross reference each other. Um, uh, there's a there's a, a a new playbook or a newish playbook um, uh, called Project Blitz, uh, organized by the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation uh, and others, and it um, repeatedly draws on uh, anti-abortion movement tactics and doctrine uh, to draft a playbook of model laws to restrict LGBTQ rights, even. Uh, in the wake of Obergefell and marriage equality, um, it um, 
it uh, explicitly uses uh, abortion as an analogy explaining that while the Supreme Court can declare that a right exists, um, at the same time, states should be able to do their best to burden um, and disfavor the right holders and treat them as lesser citizens. And it's explicitly set forth, we're going to try to use science, um, bogus junk science, (laughs) um, to cleanse uh, these model laws, uh, at least superficially, of their roots in religion, animus, and other uh, impermissible uh, motives. Um, and we're going to try to establish the doctrinal position, that proposition that uh, there's a hierarchy of constitutional rights, um, that uh, uh, the Christian dominionism, um, which the founders never endorsed, um, you know, is sort of the, the, the among our highest order of right the, and, and that the state should be able to uh, undermine individuals who are um, seeking to exercise their, their rights. Um, the, a, a quote from the Project Blitz uh, playbook um, uh, says, uh, when the Supreme Court gave women the right to elective abortions, it did not simultaneously require businesses to celebrate them. Uh, and government schools to teach children about them, similarly by creating minimal uh, LGBTQ rights and restrictions on the states. Uh, The Supreme Court does not intend to dictate the determinations of society's best practices. Mm. Um, Therefore, the legislative and executive branches of government can make findings and express their own viewpoints uh, on topics such as abortion and same-sex marriage and through their policies enhance the chances that children will live, live productive, healthy lives and mature to be good citizens. Um, I guess there's there's a bunch of people who are bad citizens, <laughs> and uh, th- those those people are grouped together by Project Blitz. <laughs> I wear it as a badge of honor. Um, so I think what this reveals, I mean, some of the work that I used to do at Lambda Legal had to do with. Um, courts and the types of judges that these same organizations are fighting for, paying ads against in states where they have judicial elections. And you are seeing that anti-abortion forces, that um, anti-LGBT groups are pooling their money together using the same strategy to attack and defeat state judges who will be openly receptive uh, to LGBT people and to reproductive justice arguments. And so there is this strong link. And one of the things that you brought up is that their arguments uh, are, are also very linked. And this kind of gets to we're always battling these um, uh, religious refusals, religious exemption uh, arguments, um, the sweeping directives about uh, faith and protecting faith and giving people broad exemptions to generally applicable laws coming from this administration. Um, So the arguments are also similar. Can you talk about how religious refusals kind of uh, show up in reproductive justice as they do with LGBT rights? Uh, We are common bedfellows, (laughs) the Center for Reproductive Rights and and Lambda. Um, There there are... um, uh, there, there are a host of things uh, the Trump administration has done that, uh, in the guise of elevating a certain uh, version of uh, religion, um, uh, 
put second place people's dignity, autonomy, and civil rights. And we are, um, the Center for Reproductive Rights has filed, uh, uh, signed briefs in LGBTQ cases and LGBTQ organizations have, have uh, submitted briefs in, in our cases and, and we are, the Center for Reproductive Rights is a co-counsel with Lambda uh, currently in a case and Americans United for Separation of Church of State and in a case uh, challenging some of these religious exemption rules. Uh, the Trump rate, uh, administration rolled out first some, uh, some regulations rolling back um, uh, access to uh, contraception, uh, the insurance mandate under the Affordable Care Act. It then rolled back the definition of sex discrimination under the Affordable Care Act, uh, affecting both reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights. Uh, it also uh, enacted a, an absurdly broad set of regulations uh, commonly referred to as the denial of care rule, uh, which allows the flat-out denial of health care based on the most attenuated, um, thin reasons that somebody that, that a health care provider or other uh, hospital employee might have to, um, uh, to, to assert that these so the denial of care regulations would allow religious objections not just based on the uh, type of care being health care being provided, but even the type of person who's asking for the health care. So the six-year-old child uh, with a flu uh, who has uh, two mothers um, could be told by their health care provider, sorry, no go. You know, the teen who goes in to uh, speak to their pediatrician or uh, about, uh, you know, HIV might have that doctor just say nothing about uh, PrEP. The regulations uh, provide that there's no duty to notify the patient that you're omitting information <laughs> um, or healthcare services. Um, the patient would go home not knowing uh, that they had missed out on getting uh, appropriate healthcare. Uh, the regulations also uh, have no exception for emergencies. Um, so one of the examples that came up in the litigation we were doing with Lambda about this was what happens if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, a, a particular type of, of, of complication, um, and an ambulance is called, and uh, in an ectopic pregnancy, the, the, um, uh, the pregnancy develops outside of the uterus, often in, in, the, in the fallopian tube, and it can be life-threatening. Uh, and the pregnancy cannot continue. You you need to end that. A doctor needs to end that pregnancy. And uh, the example that uh, the government can, was not able to to assure us would be handled correctly was, was you know what happens if an ambulance driver says, "I'm really against uh, that that person getting uh, you know the the ectopic pregnancy taken care of at a hospital. Uh, I'm not going to drive them there. I'm going to let them bleed out." Would that be okay under the regulations we asked? And, uh, and, and we did not get the answer, no. These regulations are, um, uh, are, are, are showing a trend of exemption creep. <laughs> it, yeah. it goes from one thing to another to another. Um, at this point, uh, 
you know, we are fighting regulations uh, with Lambda that are as broad as possibly could be conceived. Well, I'm encouraged to see that um, the center is actually monitoring LGBTQ litigation in a very strategic way. And you're actually in charge of that, of those synergies, right? Yes. Um, and making sure that we're strategic in the way that this litigation moves forward and thoughtful about it. Um, can you talk a little bit about, we're going through the Title VII litigation, right? Um, you have a really interesting, here in New York, we have a really interesting case that Zarda, which is before the Supreme Court now, um, the Second Circuit going on Bonk and Zarda. Um, that's just an interesting story in and of itself. You've got a connection to that story. Would you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I had uh, uh, been working as a clerk um, in the Second Circuit when the when an early Title VII case was decided called Simington versus Runyon. And it's been interesting to see the uh, evolution of law over sort of a 15-year period uh, or so. At the time that early case, Simington versus Runyon, was decided, uh, I, I believe it was 2000, um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission did not take the position that sex discrimination um, has application to LGBTQ people. Uh, there was a dearth of uh, court decisions um, saying that in, in, in the Simmonson versus Runyon case, a, a, a gay man had endured just horrific um, uh, harassment and, and, and discrimination. And uh, Simmonson Runyon versus Runyon sort of acknowledged the possibility that although that plaintiff had not teed up um, a, an argument that might entitle him to relief under Title VII, there might be an avenue for making such a claim um, that was dicta, that was not necessary to the resolution of the case. Uh, it gestured at uh, some possibilities, perhaps opened a door. Uh, the law became, the, the law progressed in very halting fashion, <laughs> over, yeah. t tacking back and forth over the, over the next bunch of years and how the Second Circuit um, and other courts uh, decided to walk through that open door uh, was sometimes confusing and sometimes involved um, distinctions between different types of plaintiffs that made no sense. Um, and like by the, the effeminate plaintiff and the gender conforming plaintiff. Exactly. And uh, what, what seemed like a, uh, a, a very um, liberatory um, possibility, uh, you know, written into this uh, 2000 decision, um, then fast forward 10 or 15 years, starts being referred to as um, a oh, terrible decision <laughs> that needs to be overruled because uh, we, we, we've got such a, uh, a better understanding of things now. And the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has changed its mind, and we now have new ways of, of thinking about this. Um, and I, I think... Uh, it one of the things that it it re that really strikes home for me about that is that there's uh, there's always a a mental blockage um, 
when talking about whether uh, we're dealing with sex discrimination or something else. And, and the same thing was true around marriage equality, um, a similar sort of phenomenon um, uh, could be observed. It is very clear that when somebody, uh, you know, has uh, a picture of their uh, same-sex husband on their desk or their different-sex wife on their desk and they get treated differently uh, at the workplace, one is fired, well, maybe. <laughs> There's been sex discrimination in, in a literal sense, and what actually is happening is uh, conservative uh, folks are trying to create a carve-out um, from the literal application of the term sex discrimination uh, for LGBTQ people. But, you know, historically there was this mindset, no, that's not sex discrimination because even if it meets the literal terms of sex discrimination, I've got another label for it. Mm -hmm. And that label has a uh, latch on my mind. It seizes my mind and I can't see past it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's another phenomenon because I've got another word for it. It's anti-gay animus. It's not a distinction around sex. And one of the interesting things that... Um, you see when looking at both women's rights litigation and LGBT litigation is this same phenomenon comes up again and again when uh, Title VII was initially um, put into place in the 1960s, uh, there were sex-segregated help-wanted ads. And the EEOC initially viewed those as not sex discrimination. It was just something else. It was just a common sense way the world worked. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us now to imagine that sex-segregated, help-wanted ads wouldn't automatically be seen as sex discrimination. Yeah. But they were seen as just that other thing, something else that the mind was so used to that it did not automatically seem to fit into the literal scope of the term. Yeah. Um, there were early battles um, over airlines hiring only female unmarried flight attendants um, and airlines argued these policies weren't sexist uh, because they were natural pleased customers um, reduced complaints from husbands about their wives working hours and there were early court decisions and it was there was a really fierce debate at the time is that sex discrimination or is that just something else yeah. um, you know good administration of airline employee policies, um, right. doing what's best business. Um, until the 1980s, courts didn't recognize sexual harassment as a form of sex discrimination. It was separate. Mm -hmm. It was natural. It was something else. It was a personal problem um, that had its own label. Um, and repeatedly, this initial perception that a phenomenon is something else right. um, has disintegrated over time. Uh, over the decades when looking at sex discrimination law um, since 1964 when Title VII was, was enacted, um, allowing courts to open their eyes, <laughs> read the words of, of, of the statute, and identify the practice uh, literally as sex discrimination. Right, and that's literally what Scalia is talking about in On Call when he says yes. we don't have to see at the time the manifestations of the evils that we're going to be addressing with this, this statute. Absolutely. Scalia's statements in On Call were um, featured prominently in much of the briefing uh, around Zarda and the other Title VII cases. Um, 
All right. So why don't we talk about the big Supreme Court case that um, that you all are involved in? Uh, it's a challenge to Louisiana's uh, re restrictive admitted uh, admitting privileges law. In most ways, it's nearly identical to a fight that I feel like we just had, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Hasn't the Supreme Court already weighed in on this? Why are we doing this again? Uh, I would disagree with one thing you said slightly. The laws are identical okay. in the 2016 <laughs> case right. that the Supreme Court decided. Make my point even stronger. And in this year's case. <laughs> Uh, they are not similar. They're not okay. roughly the same. Yeah. Uh, in 2016, the Supreme Court struck down a Texas law that required doctors providing abortions to have so-called admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of their uh, clinic. Uh, the court, Supreme Court held that was unconstitutional because it shut down clinics without uh, actually providing any benefit to patients' health or safety. Uh, among other things, the opinion is notable for uh, its refusal to accept junk science right. <laughs> and uh, its, um, uh, its demonstration that you actually need to look at the evidence and decide, uh, is there a, um, a meaningful benefit to this sort of law? and what is the type of burden the law um, imposes and how do those things balance against each other. Uh, the law that is at stake in this year's case uh, was passed um, in Louisiana and it is identical. It requires doctors providing abortions to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of their clinic. Full stop. Um, full stop. And in fact, the um, uh, an author of, of the law uh, from an anti-abortion advocacy group um, uh, emailed the uh, legislative sponsor of the law uh, uh, indicating that it was modeled on the Texas law, uh, which had, quote, tremendous success in shutting down Texas's clinics. Uh, it, the, the law in Texas did shut down a majority of Texas's clinics. Why is the Supreme Court hearing this? The Supreme Court is hearing this because the Fifth Circuit, um, when addressing Louisiana's law, decided to repeat the errors that the Supreme Court had admonished it for in 2016. And it said, you struck down the identical law in Texas, but uh, gosh, that case was decided on a Tuesday and today is a Wednesday. So we're going to uphold the identical law in the neighboring state of Louisiana. Uh, the case is uh, an interesting one because the, um, the immediate impression of uh, the public upon hearing something like, you must have admitting privileges at a local hospital, sounds on its surface um, benign. Uh, it has been cleverly designed that way. <laughs> so is there any new, I mean, this was all the same old bad science that they presented before. Yes. Are they presenting anything new or is the argument on the other side literally the same? I mean, uh, surely they've had a few years now, that was 2016, <laughs> to think of maybe some new arguments. Uh, the Fifth Circuit's willing to just thumb their nose at the Supreme Court, but surely they're gonna have to present something new to the justices not just hope that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh now uh, will jump on board because they weren't there then. 
I would say there's uh, there's a couple of things they have tried to do. Uh, one, they have argued that uh, doctors uh, and um, uh, and clinics uh, should not even be able to challenge these laws. So there is a an argument that they are making here, um, which would require the court to overrule past precedent. Um, which would lead the Supreme Court to say, we're not even going to get into looking at this law. We're simply going to rule that doctors and clinics do not have, it's called standing, to uh, assert that uh, a state law against um, uh, abortion is constitutional. The absurd thing here is this law is a, has criminal penalties the state of Louisiana would put a doctor in jail right. for performing right. an abortion uh, if they did not um, have admitting privileges, that doctor could not say to the court, according to the state of Louisiana, judge, you're putting me in prison <laughs> right. under a law that is a nullity, <laughs> under right. a law that has no constitutional basis to exist in the first place. By the way, as you held with an identical law three years ago, the idea that the, the doctor cannot have standing to Show even that make that objection right. before they're put in prison okay. is absurd. And when the doctor um, uh, is put in prison, what happens to the woman's access to abortion? Right. I mean, the, the two are c completely intertwined and interdependent. It's not like doctors are random taxpayers interested in good government who want to make an argument about somebody else's rights they have nothing to do with. Right. The second thing that Louisiana has argued is uh, the doctors need to exhaustively apply to many, many hospitals to um, to demonstrate their good faith, uh, and that is is there's a couple of problems with that. One is the 2016 case um, involved no such requirement, mm -hmm. um, and on the record here, uh, the doctors applied to I, I think it was about a, a dozen hospitals or so, and uh, the requirement that a doctor apply to yet another hospital is not going to provide new information. The, the core issue is whether the law in its nature is an undue burden of a constitutional right. The last question that I want to tee up for you is, you, uh, you know, I think many of our listeners might be surprised to learn that the Center for Reproductive Rights has offices all over the world. Yes. Um, and that a lot of the arguments um, that we're hearing are similar across the world, but that international human rights law actually has been dealing with particularly religious exemptions um, in a reasonable and um, positive way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the development, like some of the work that you're doing internationally, and how international law has developed in the context of uh, religious exemptions and, and the like? Well, the center's uh, work around the world involves uh, a, a wide array of issues. Um, uh, it ranges from helping obtain reform of Ireland's strict anti-abortion uh, laws to uh, 
work dealing uh, with things that the U.S. takes for granted, um, you know, situations like girls in Africa um, uh, being pregnancy tested at their schools and, and being kicked out of, of school for that reason. Um, we deal with a lot of issues around the world. With respect to uh, international human rights law, the, the U. I was born in Canada, so I have always had a view that the U.S. is a little bit parochial, um, <laughs> and uh, and 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 some of my my views about what um, what sort of um, uh, justice means uh, I think are are informed by things I took for granted when I was growing up um, in in Canada. In any event, the U.S., Canada, other countries around the world. They pay attention to international human rights law. The, the U.S. courts are a little parochial in this respect, but on, on religious exemptions in particular, human rights law is actually um, quite clear. Uh, it, it, it prohibits freedom of religion uh, from trumping other fundamental rights. Um, for example, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief um, has stated uh, freedom of religion or belief does not give the individual the power to marginalize or suppress other individuals. This is especially applicable with regard to women, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or intersex persons under the guise of manifesting uh, their religion. And this includes the denial of access to reproductive health services. Uh, U.S. courts aren't always receptive to basing their decisions on human rights norms. Um, but we can bring them to court's attention. We can attempt to hold the U.S. accountable uh, with international human rights re reporters, and we can uh, hopefully help educate people to understand that this recent, fairly recent development um, of of weaponizing religious freedom to trump other people's fundamental uh, liberty and equality is not something that is thought of as okay. <laughs> under international human rights law. It is, um, it's a development that puts the U.S. out of step right. with, uh, with human rights norms. That's fascinating. Um, and I wish those, um, those conversations were as developed as some of the originalism conversations that we had, but courts are generally just not receptive um, to hearing about it's American exceptionalism, right? We don't listen to what the rest of the world is doing. There was a big, wasn't that in Lawrence where there was a brouhaha about Kennedy citing international human rights um, or just international laws the way that uh, countries were dealing with sodomy around the world? Or Yes. Uh, different judges, justices have had different views on this. Um, and, uh, you know, as to Lawrence, I, I remember being in the oral argument um I was not the Paul Smith orally argued. I was in the room. Um, uh, I had worked on a on, a, on an amicus brief with um, uh, uh, Paul ju now Judge Paul Atkin and uh, oh, and nice. Kai Feldblum uh, in that case, um, uh, targeting the equal protection angle. Uh, anyways, but in the <laughs> in the room that day, there was um, which the court didn't buy into. No, but we got O'Connor to, to write something about it. Oh, that's it. true. That's O'Connor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you were O'Connor's concurrence. Yes, exactly. Um, it, it, it was um, the people who were in the room that day who had also been in, in the room for the oral argument of, of Bowers um, versus Hardwick described a palpable 
difference in um, in atmosphere that uh, in the Bowers oral argument people there was a, there was sort of a hush there was a reluctance to even talk about what they were there to talk about mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in the, the room when uh, Lawrence versus Texas was argued in 2003 uh, I, I believe it was Scalia but I, I'd have, I haven't checked the transcript recently but mm-hmm. uh, yes would say things um, and there would be refreshing laughter mm. and I don't know if the transcript reflects that but the 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 atmosphere the common sense understanding of what norms should be matters to how judges decide cases and knowing that if you step outside u.s borders you will find that there are norms about what are human rights of liberty of equality um of not letting one person's uh, attenuated thin claims of uh, liberty to do what they want on a religious basis to trample uh, other pe- people's uh, dignity and autonomy. Uh, knowing that there is uh, a culture out there that judges and, uh, and citizens should pay attention to that um, doesn't allow this cynical use of religion, uh, hopefully um, could change um, some of the atmosphere in which judges make their decisions. What, um, if, if any of our listeners who are LGBTQ are deeply passionate about the linkage between LGBTQ uh, civil rights and reproductive justice and want to get involved with the center's work or even just in the fight to make, these, to make sure these movements sustain and uh, advance, what are some of the things that they could do, or what, what would you recommend they do? Uh, one of the things I would recommend is to treat the courts and the Supreme Court as if they and it uh, matter. Uh, the uh, Federalist Society, which was founded a number of years ago, to um, incubate um, uh, particular views of the law has been very successful in uh, incubating judges and um, influencing uh, uh, decisions about who gets on the Supreme Court. And uh, we all need to be very attentive to uh, the fact that nominations matter, um, and that affects um, uh, I think since 2016, especially uh, civil rights groups and people doing all sorts of progressive work recognize that uh, they are in the same boat and that, uh, that the need to support uh, allies um, uh, matters tremendously, um, uh, whether it's uh, addressing the rule of law, um, whether it's uh, uh, addressing the role of junk science, <laughs> yep. um, the, the courts matter, and they have profound impact on some of the most important aspects of our decisions about how to live our lives. Um, so the next time there's a nomination, um, and the Center for Reproductive Rights puts out a uh, report um, saying, as we as we did um, about a year and a bit ago this nominee 
um, has praised the dissents in Roe versus Wade and in Obergefell, pay attention. Um, think about that when, uh, about the importance of that um, uh, when it comes to um, uh, concrete actions. Uh, if you're interested and able, you can uh, show up to the Supreme Court at oral arguments. Um, it helps convey to the public, as well as the courts, uh, that people are uh, supporting liberty and equality. Uh, on March 4th, the date of oral argument of the Supreme Court case where Louisiana has asked to the court to uphold the identical law that it struck down. Right. You came out when it was Texas, <laughs> come out when it's Louisiana. In Texas, there will be a rally on the Supreme Court steps um, on March 4th in D.C. Um, show up for that and support organizations that are doing work that you care about and recognize that um, there are profound linkages between um, the many allies uh, fighting together. Um, in these times. Great. Well, Scott, thank you so much. We've covered a lot of ground here, but it's absolutely fascinating. And uh, I'm sure our listeners think so as well. Thank you so much for listening. We are actually celebrating over 150,000 downloads of the Legal LGBT podcast, and we could not do it without you in the most literal sense. So thank you so much for listening, for sharing this with your friends. You can help others to discover us if you like us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Leave a comment. It's what uh, attracts people uh, to our podcast, helps them discover us. It's funny what Scott brought to my attention is that one of the comments is talking about how fabulous uh, this podcast is and how we talk about uh, the most cutting-edge issues in LGBT rights law. And the other comment that we have that pops up most recently just says, uh, it has a one-star rating and it says gay. <laughs> so uh, that that's certainly right. And uh, we wear that with a badge of honor. Please uh, contribute to those comments so others can find us. We will be back next week where we will talk with Professor Art Leonard uh, about the most recent litigation in this area. Thank you so much for listening.